Welcome back to the Falklands War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 21, and it's the last episode dealing with this short, sharp war. The British had taken most of the hills overlooking Port Stanley by the morning of the 14th of June, 1982, and two para had been ordered to halt on their position on Wireless Ridge. They were waiting for the SAS and the Royal Marines, who were raiding from the north of Courtley Hill Ridge, a long, narrow piece of land running from Moody Brook to the northern arm of Stanley Harbour. That operation, though, was more of a hindrance than a help to two para, because the SAS ran into trouble and had to be supported by the artillery that had been clearing the ground for the paras. Courtley Ridge was manned by the Argentinian Bravo Battery of the 101st Anti-Aircraft Regiment. They had eight Hispano Sousa 30mm guns and a few 12.7mm machine guns which had been used against aircraft, but now Brigadier General Joffre ordered them to swivel horizontally and provide ground defence. He had also moved a few mortars into the position, along with a Marine Infantry platoon to back it all up. The SAS raiding party was heading their way, but they were forced to head past the Argentinian hospital ship Almirante Iriza. A member of the ship's crew was a commando-trained soldier, and without thinking about the Geneva Convention and the rules of war, he grabbed a radio and called the anti-aircraft battery on the hill, warning of the SAS. Subsequently, the SAS raiding party was driven off. Three were wounded. Boats were damaged. The soldiers of both armies had endured boredom and terror, exposure, fatigue, hunger and danger, but their ordeal would soon be over. It was wireless ridge that triggered the collapse. The British now dominated all open ground to the west of Stanley, and the entire Argentinian defensive position was outflanked. Large numbers of Argentinian troops were streaming back from Moodybrook, Tumbledown and Mount William. As they staggered along the valley, the British opened fire with everything they had, Artillery, mortars, rockets, even scout helicopters appeared and carried out missile and machine gun attacks. These choppers had stayed away from the valley ever since two gazelles had been shot down by the Argentinians on the first day of the invasion all those weeks back. Brigadier General Joffre watched the carnage from Stanley and knew that any attempt at holding the open ground was suicide. All his troops had been withdrawn to the edge of Stanley to await his next move. There was only one more piece of high ground which could serve as a defensive position west of Stanley, and it's called Sapper Hill. It's small and grassy, only 450 feet high, and it's a mile southwest of Stanley itself. The Argentinian Mike Company of the 5th Marine Infantry Battalion was well dug in here and escaped the mayhem of the British shelling on the plain. They were joined by a few Marines from Tumbledown and Mount William. A swift attack was needed to displace these soldiers who were going to go down fighting. It was the British 45 Commando who were to take this last vestige of Argentinian high ground, and the Welsh guards were choppered in and landed on a track outside the range of the Sapper Hill gunners. But three Sea King helicopters flew in too close, and the Argentine Marines opened fire, wounding one of the Royal Marines. They fired back, killing three Argentinians. Fortunately for all involved, a surrender was going to save both sets of Marines from each other. 6,000 artillery rounds had been fired at the Argentinians in the last 12 hours, and they were shell-shocked. The morning of the 14th of June had also brought news that three islanders had been killed by the British bombardment. Moodybrook had been flattened. Machine gun fire had peppered every building beyond Stanley. Just as a few more artillery rounds were being prepared to fire, orders changed. 
Check firing, check firing. There are white flags in Stanley, shouted an officer. It was one thirty in the afternoon. The Argentinians said afterwards no white flags were flown, but that doesn't really matter. The firing had stopped because the Argentinians had surrendered, white flag or not. It's ironic that the final encounter of this war had taken place on virtually the same route taken by Pedro Giottino and his amphibious commando when they attacked the Royal Marines at Government House on the night of the Argentine invasion ten and a half weeks earlier. It's also ironic that the final clash involved Marines on both sides at Sapper Hill. Major General Moore's Spanish speaker, Bell, had been trying to contact General Menendez since 0900. The Argentinian commander himself had spoken to President Galtieri, but the leader had been non-committal about the idea of giving up. Galtieri, back in Buenos Aires, refused to believe the situation was so desperate, and he ordered Menendez to attack in a kind of Adolf Hitler moment of complete disassociation from the facts. Menendez told Galtieri to announce a withdrawal in terms of the UN Resolution 502 of early April so that the Argentinians could save face. But Galtieri did not want to make a move that could cause him to lose power, preferring to send his men to their inevitable deaths on the Falklands. Menendez still had nearly three full regiments of infantry that had not fired a shot yet, as well as artillery, armoured cars and Air Force personnel at the airport. Menendez had now to make his own decision. Sitting in the radio room at Stanley, listening to the British calls for surrender, was an Argentinian who sounded very English. Captain Barry Melbourne Hussey was at his desk when Menendez called for him. The Argentinian commander told Hussey to head back to the radio and to tell the British he was willing to discuss terms. Rod Bell on the other side heard Captain Hussey. Another irony in this war that the two men, Bell, who was English, and the only Spanish speaker fighting on the British side, and Hussey, who was an Argentinian Spanish speaker of English extraction, were to talk to each other about this surrender. It was several hours before the British helicopter carrying their senior officers could land. In the meantime, the British soldiers were told to march to the outskirts of the town and then stop on the western edge. It was a ceasefire, you see, at this point, not a surrender. A sea king with Colonel Rose and translator Rod Bell on board took off, along with a gazelle which would clear the way, and then it nearly jeopardized the entire surrender process. The gazelle landed 500 yards from the soccer pitch near the hospital, which was earmarked as the LZ. Captain Hussey jumped up from his radio and ran off through the hedgerows and fields to greet Bell. We saw you landing in the wrong place, said Hussey. We don't know Stanley as well as you, replied Bell. The soldiers then walked along the main street to Menendez's office in Government House. Stiff and formal talks took place, but these didn't take long. First, there would be no more fighting, agreed. For some reason, Menendez refused to consider West Falkland surrender, then relented. Both sides agreed to halt air and sea hostilities while the Argentinians were shipped home. Menendez asked to be allowed to remain with his troops until they left, but Rose, who was in constant radio contact with General Moore, said no, Menendez shed a tear and poured himself a whiskey. Then he stood to attention and shook Bell's hand. Moments later, other British representatives arrived in town, led by Max Hastings ahead of two para. He ditched his military gear as he waited with two para about a mile west of Stanley and then donned a blue sailing jersey. He walked into town with his hands above his head and said afterwards, It was like liberating a suburban golf club.
A Reuters journalist called Leslie Dowd arrived soon after Hastings wearing his camouflage uniform. As he walked into Stanley Hospital, he was mobbed by enthusiastic nurses who said, It's a British soldier! They screamed in delight, but he was not a soldier, he was a journalist. It took three more hours before Major General Moore appeared, and he was more pale than usual. His sea king had been thrown around in a snowstorm en route, but he recovered quickly to stride up the steps of Government House where he met Menendez. They were to sign the all-important document. Moments later, though, Menendez crossed out unconditional and replaced that with just surrender. Moore ignored this and signed it anyway. It was clear that the Argentinians were beaten. There was no need to humiliate the man. Moore strode out of the building a short while later, flourishing the document. He had refused to let journalists film the signing because he was worried that Menendez may also feel his honour was being impaired, and he was right. It was lucky that they did this so quickly because winter proper was arriving and the exposed troops were in danger from the snow. Moore, though, was carried aloft by kelpers, swept on a tour of Stanley, where he was kissed and hugged, picked up babies, shook hands, and drank tea and whiskey until well into the night. In West Falklands, the Argentinian forces were shocked. The consolation prize to take this part of the islands fell on Malcolm Hunt, O.C. of 40 Commando, the man who'd been bitterly disappointed to be left behind to guard San Carlos. A surrender ceremony took place on the Port Howard soccer pitch on the 15th of June. Then our old friend Major Southby Taylor was dispatched with a party of officers, journalists and soldiers to round up any other enemy on the smaller islands. At Pebble Island, the officer refused to believe this, then eventually relented. And onwards they went to Carcass Island, Golding Island and Keppel Island. The surrender was followed by days of appalling administrative problems, made worse by the exhaustion that had set in after weeks of fighting. The main problem was finding accommodation for the 15,000 British and Argentinian soldiers now on East Falklands. There was hardly enough shelter for 1,500 kelpers, let alone 5,000 British troops and close to 10,000 Argentinians. On the morning of the 15th of June, General Menendez was moved to HMS Fearless in San Carlos Water, and his men were moved to Stanley Airfield, which turned into a prisoner of war camp. Brigadier General Joffre remained in the Falklands to coordinate the movement of the Argentinian units back to the mainland, and a huge dump of their weapons was created on the road to the airport as the men threw down their automatic weapons. The Argentinians complained that the Paras were treating them badly, whereas the Royal Marines were more empathetic. The Marines ran the evacuation effectively. The Paras were trained as shock troops, far more aggressive, hardly administrators. The weather turned colder, the snow fell harder, as these Argentinians sheltered in their half-tents and under-corrugated iron at the airfield. A massive airlift now began, with the POWs transferred to the Canberra and the North Sea Ferry Norland, which was to take them home. The British wanted to get these men off the islands first before they shipped their own troops home. The arrival of so many defeated troops back in Argentina was a big problem for the Junta, so they ordered the ships to disembark their cargo at La Plata Harbour, not Buenos Aires. Galtieri's dictatorship had not prepared their people for any possible defeat. This was hard to explain. Worse, the Argentine army sent no one to meet the POWs who'd fought so well and with so much courage. The local harbour master was the official in charge, and Lieutenant Colonel Piaggi and his men were sent quietly to an NCO training school, 
Then the men were sent home. As they arrived at their homes across Argentina, Galtieri told the nation of the defeat. General Galtieri was forced to resign on the 17th of June 1982, a fitting end to a pompous loudmouth who oversaw the death of so many of his people, the murder of opponents, an escapade on the Falklands had led to his ignominious loss of power. But the returning officers were treated very badly indeed by the British. 500 of these were kept as bargaining chips in case the junta reneged on the surrender. Eventually, they were returned even though Buenos Aires refused to declare formally that hostilities were over. A little publicised event then took place on the tiny Cook Island far away in the Sandwich Islands. On the 20th of June, the British seized this from Argentinian scientists. They had landed there in 1976, and this final act meant that Buenos Aires lost control over even the smallest island it held in the South Atlantic. They had lost the Falklands, South Georgia, and the Sandwich Islands. 655 Argentinians did not make it home, buried at sea or on the Falklands, or lost. For both sides... The heaviest losses had been at sea. The Argentinians lost 356 men, including 323 on the General Belgrano. The British lost 197 men at sea. 45 Argentinian pilots and aircrew had died. The British had lost four killed, not counting their helicopter crew. Argentinian material losses were colossal. One cruiser, one submarine, three transport ships, and the trawler Narwhal, three smaller ships, 75 fixed-wing aircraft, 25 helicopters. The British lost 34 aircraft, 24 helicopters, and 10 Harriers. 255 British servicemen had died, and three kelpers, all women. Another woman back in Britain, Margaret Thatcher, was fated as the Iron Lady, the epitome of British spirit. Her leadership during the Falklands harked back to Churchill, she towered over the Falklands drama, from the inception to the euphoria of the final triumph. Her personality matched its often eccentric sense of proportion. It was Thatcher's war, seemingly victorious, but with a note of caution. It was Thatcher's cabinet who had managed to delude the Argentinians into believing that they could invade British territory with apparent impunity. Her government had unpicked military and navy decisions and had weakened the state of readiness as she worried about high costs. She weakened her military power and her cabinet, and this led to Buenos Aires' mistaken view of how London saw her little island. The shock of the invasion has never left the British establishment, which is now monitoring the Russian threat as Moscow invades Ukraine and threatens Moldova and the Baltic states amongst others. The Falklands were a wake-up call for Britain, where politicians had forgotten the lessons of the 1930s and what happens when fascists seize the keys to power. For the Argentinian junta, it was a catastrophe that in some ways continues to resonate. A retired general, Ronaldo Bignoni, was installed as the new president, but he was there as a caretaker because Argentina's military dictatorship was over, killed by the Malvinas loss. It would return to civilian rule largely because of the defeat in the Falklands. But the leadership there needed scapegoats, so they duly lined up the defeated officers for special treatment. A commission found that all the senior officers and junta members were to blame, and Vice Admiral Lombardo 
General Garcia, Brigadier Generals Menendez, Joffre and Parada were charged with various degrees of failure. Joffre was eventually exonerated but resigned from the military in 1983. Lieutenant Colonel Piaggi was forced to resign his commission and retire. Lombardo, Menendez and Parada were hounded for years in and out of court as they faced constant blame. However, it's probably Argentinian writer Jorge Luis Borges who summed up this war best. He called it a fight between two bald men over a comb. Argentina still claims the Malvinas. The British at some point will have to reassess their ownership based on the Kelpers' self-determination. This series was scripted in 2022, and as I sit here, the United Nations is revisiting the whole idea of who owns these windswept islands. This is a complex matter, because the UN General Assembly is muttering about colonialism, which is what London is accused of perpetuating. The conscripts and professional soldiers on both sides remember this war like it was yesterday. Some of the Argentinians want their ashes scattered on places like Mount Kent when they die. Hundreds of British servicemen still suffer the physical and mental scars. The people on the islands want to run their own show, like a woman who told an Argentinian that she was 40 but looked 60 because of how tough it was to live on these islands. We feel that the country belongs to us, not to England, not to Argentina. Life is very hard. Nobody has ever cared about us. Which you can say, if you've followed the story, is true. The politicians only began caring when geopolitical issues came to the fore, and in the future, both sets of countries may find these people much harder to deal with than they were in 1982. There is much dignity in the interviews I've heard between the combatants of this war. In some ways, it represented something that you'd think would only happen in the 19th century. I have always admired the British, said one Argentinian to journalist Martin Middlebrook. And it made me very sad that the only war I fought in was against the British. Perhaps, though, we should end the series with an important warning note from 2nd Lieutenant Augusto La Madrid of the 6th Regiment. We heard from him in episode 20, and after the war he said that, I think the British fought well. I had a sporting respect for them, just like the opponents of a good raga match, even if you have lost. But I have not lost hope that one day I might fight again in the Malvinas and settle the debt for those of my men who died there. With that warning, it's the end of the series. I hope you found it informative. Please look out for my other military podcast series, The Anglo-Boer War, The Battle of Stalingrad, and South African Border Wars. I also host a podcast called Plane Crash Diaries and another called The History of South Africa Podcast. It's busy in my little studio. The music for the series is a composition by Kevin McLeod called Devastation and Revenge. And thanks, Kevin, for allowing me to use your composition. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. It helps increase the visibility. And if you'd like to contact me, you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Ciao and goodbye, everyone.